Welcome to The Sovereign Stack. The Sovereign Stack is a podcast focused on exploring individual sovereignty. Previously, our team had focused its efforts on understanding the reserve protocol. And now we are expanding our focus to include Urbit. Urbit and Reserve give people tools to defend their sovereignty. Summarized, Reserve Protocol is sovereign money and Urbit is sovereign computing. We plan on inviting guests to discuss what it means to be sovereign. Dashus Navnal is a new co-host, a familiar name in the Urbit community. Here is his interview with Lord Miles, a man who spent eight months in Taliban custody and was released just in time for Urbit Assembly in Lisbon. Here's the interview. Ancient man conquered cities and put them to sword and fire. Meanwhile, you go to Afghanistan to make tasteful banter with Taliban. You are Lord Miles, and you're here to talk to us. What's up, man? Hey, thanks for having me, Dashi. So, you recently got out of Taliban custody. How was that? Yeah, it happens to the best of us, doesn't it? You know, someday you're just hold, uh, having a holiday in Afghanistan, and then suddenly you spend eight months there. Also, I kind of enjoyed it. It was quite good. I laughed quite hard. And I ended up being the best in Taliban history, which is quite an achievement. I made some friends. I've been invited back. So I'm going back in about a week's time now. Right. To do something with a gold mine, I understand? Yeah. So I'm opening a gold mine, as you casually do, because it will fund future adventures. And the other stuff I'm doing, too, is I'm buying up a bunch of Taliban merch to resell. So I'm doing a big road trip from Afghanistan to England through mm. the most convoluted to avoid Iran. And also I'm filming a few YouTube videos with the Taliban. So the t- top commander said, hey, Miles, you seem chill. Um, come to Tora Bora with us, the Bin Laden caves, and we'll, we'll show you around. You can film a nice little goofy video. Should mm. be good. My favorite video when I was doing prep for this, my favorite videos of you is when you are shooting with the Taliban and you keep on swinging the rifle towards the Taliban and they they looked they looked a bit freaked out didn't they that was rather funny um so I thought to myself I was like if I do perfect gun safety and just kind of perfect positioning and everything they're gonna think I'm some sort of ex-soldier so I need to goof off a little bit and to be fair it was kind of fun um I think the Taliban were a little not obsessed but they were just like oh dear oh dear when they saw how terrible my gun safety was. And I think that's, uh, that's kind of funny. <laughs> well, for, for what it's worth, I was very convinced when I, when I was watching it. I, so no, I've, I, I swear I've been able to use guns, but if I, if I present that, you know, it looks a little bit dodgy. They're not fans of ex-soldiers coming back for obvious reasons. So you went to Afghanistan and, or you were in Afghanistan, in Kabul when the regime fell and you managed to get out and then you went back what was the yeah. thing exactly that you got arrested for? So I got detained under suspicion of a few. First thing, thought I was a spy. So they thought I was Mossad Miles, not Lord. And uh, of course, I was potentially a weapons dealer between um, Afghanistan and now from Afghanistan Ukraine. You know, for my trips, I've been to Afghanistan five times, Ukraine like four times. And the Russian intelligence messaged them saying, oh, this man is like the Lord of War, clearly. He's buying up U.S. Uh, surplus weapons that have been left behind and reselling them. Go and check him out. So the Taliban realized, oh, yeah, he's obviously not a weapons dealer. Yeah, this, this has no, uh, 
this is not true. And then he also said, okay, we, um, we, we know it's not a spy because working intelligence requires intelligence. He's clearly lacking that. But um, he said, okay, well, Miles, you don't have a permit to go to this one area of Afghanistan and you went there. So that's like, uh, we have to give you the minimum sentence, um, which is six months. But, you know, it's not a permit, so we've got to put you in minimum security. We've got to put you in a nice guest house, no problems. And this guest house was sort of like a, a holding facility for people who weren't convicted yet? Yeah, basically. Well, it was convicted, and then some people were held there just like for a few days before they went to court. So it was like a normal residential house in central Kabul. So you had neighbors, you had people walking by the house. You could look outside, it was no problem. So when did they... I understand that they interviewed you pretty intensely and that they were suspicious of you for a while. When did they kind of stop thinking that you were a spy? Yeah, so about two weeks in, they were meshing, uh, they were uh, interviewing me going, okay, Miles, we know you're a spy, just admit it, and we can sort your sentence out. Otherwise, it's going to drag along, you'll be here for years longer. And I go, no, I'm not a spy. Okay, Miles, we know you're a spy, but we actually want to pay you to train us on some like stuff they can teach us. So um, just admit it, and we'll let you go after a few months of training. Nope, not a spy. Okay, Miles, we know you're a spy. If you admit it, we won't uh, give you a harsh sentence. We just want you out of here to not to eat up resources. And I go, no, not a spy. So after all that stuff, they realize, oh, yeah, he's probably not a spy. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's not the typical stuff we come across. Um, and they invited me to a kind of picnic outside. So there's, it's, it's a tropical garden. There's a gazebo in the center. All the Taliban officials are there. There's a nice little um, plot of food in front of me. And there's peacocks roaming around. It's very exotic. And they go, okay, Miles, we think you're not a spy. We're not 100% sure, but you seem kind of chill. And um, I just start pitching to them my business ideas. They go, well, you know what? This man's motivations are very clear. Uh, adventure, fun, and money. So, you know, we're going to see how this goes. And I think the very bit where he trusted me 100% was, okay, Miles, if you come back, how, how can we trust you? And I said... Okay, uh, how much does a member of your intelligence agency make? Like $2,000, $2,500 a year, maybe? I'll pay this guy $2,500, and he can follow me around everywhere in Afghanistan for uh, 24 hours a day. He can always keep tabs on me, no problem. And if he sees me doing anything dodgy, obviously arrest me, but he's not going to see anything. And he said, you know, we're not going to even take you off the offer because you're offered bad. So that seemed like a chill thing. Uh, clearly not spy. No problem. So you, you mentioned when I was listening to different interviews, you mentioned that you had a laptop, but you weren't allowed Internet access. Am I understanding that correctly? So um, they said for Internet access, uh, it's not allowed. We can take your laptop from you and connect it to Internet and you can download some movies automatically. But you will have a laptop. You can't start Googling stuff. You can't start sending emails. Um, because of national security, of course, because it is like a holding place. But we can give you stuff that we can get downloaded from the internet for you, mm. uh, but you're offline, basically. I got gotcha. you. What is the taste of the Taliban when it comes to, like, movies and stuff that they like? I, I'm really fascinated by that. They don't, they don't care for complex, convoluted plots. They want fast gun running action. They were like 80s and 90s shooters quite a bit. And they really like the Rambo series. So Rambo 1, they were like, oh, this is, this is excellent. This makes sense. This is cool. But we didn't understand the whole Vietnam theme. You know, we didn't really get that. 
Rambo 2, they were like, okay, that's cool. He's going to Vietnam. He's shooting up stuff. That sounds really fun. Cool guy. And then Rambo 3, they went insane because you saw the Taliban in that movie. And he started story facing pretty much. They were like, that's us. That's Afghanistan in a movie. I was like, hell yeah. They loved that. But he also really liked Black Hawk Down because they involved winning against the Americans, like in one instance, in an engagement. So they were cheering along. They loved the music. They they kind of read and missed about um, the fighting, the war, and everything. So they were like, that's really cool. They also really liked Titanic, which was interesting. So at first, I showed them Titanic thinking that they're not going to like it. And because one guy was recommending it to all the others. At first, they were like, oh, where's the guns? I don't get it. At the end, they were kind of shedding tears a little bit. And they, they ranted about it so much. When a new guy would come in the house, they would yell, Titanic, 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 and put it on. We watched Titanic about eight times in total. They loved it. Hopeless romantics at heart, I feel. You know, kind of, kind of opened their heart a little bit. And they also really did like um, the new Barbie movie, funnily enough. Did... I have not seen the new Barbie movie, but my understanding of it is that Ken discovers the patriarchy. Was... Basically, yeah. It's the entire movie. And it's it's kind of funny. It's very, kind of very uh, comedic. And it gave the Taliban a kind of insight into uh, love and dating and comedy in the West. So we found it quite funny in some places. And we found it quite silly. I had to explain some parts, but they would chill with it. So... This is on my list here, but what is the technical skill of the Taliban? Like, I'm sure that they understand computers and they can work them, but would you say that they know how to program? Or or I don't know if you saw that much in your experience. It depends on the type of Taliban. There's some Taliban that are trained specifically for computers who know how to program and know about spyware and all this other stuff. So they basically ripped apart my laptop uh, software-wise and checked everything. They found nothing. But the other Taliban, have no, like the, uh, the average everyday grunts, have never interacted with a laptop before. So they saw it and started hitting buttons randomly trying to make things happen. And they were like, I don't get it. I was like, yeah, this is how it works. They all know how to use mobiles. That's an everyday thing for them. Um, most of them don't know how to program. But if you go to the higher-ups, they're using laptops all the time. They're very um, busy business people, just working the average nine to five. And they kind of miss the wall at this point. I, I wanted to ask you about that. The, the meme online is that they're now running a government, which is not nearly as fun as overthrowing one. But yeah, is that, is that real? Yeah, 100%. I talked to him about it. I said, hey, there's this idea that you guys are really, really bored and, you know, you have to do all this menial admin work. And they just sighed and went, oh, my gosh, yes, 100%. They were very, like, enthusiastic about it. And they were like, you know, do you guys do this in the West all the time? It's just typing computers? We despise this. I'm so depressed. Some of them said, I wish I died in the, uh, in the jihad against uh, America. They were like, I had a chance to put on a vest and... Um, blow up a vehicle or something. I wish I did that, bro. So, like, I wish I did that. Now I'm just really depressed and bored. And they kind of miss the mountain action. You know, now we have to work a nine-to-five, pay taxes, sit in a room all day, listen to printer noises, figure out how to change toner cartridges. It's, it's BS. Worse than hell. Yeah, it's a wagey hell. Um, I, I'm interested in where Afghanistan as a country goes from here and specifically the Taliban building up a state that has been effectively destroyed or are just left to, to 
to fend for itself, and now you're starting almost from scratch. What is it that they want to do? I understand that you promote that you try to promote them for tourism, um, but what what is their overarching goal? Do you think? Well, I think the first wave would be complete stability and security. So what they want to do right now is they know there's a little bit of foreign influence that's working against them. So there's still CIA presence in Afghanistan. Occasionally, they've eliminated, eliminated ISIS in Afghanistan, so ISIS is no longer a problem. But they see sometimes some ISIS members try and jump the border from Iran and Pakistan. And there's a border to some other so at the moment, they're trying to secure the internal country just to be safe for residents, to make sure no one but the Taliban is in charge, which makes sense for a new government. And then from that, they're going to be a bit more liberal and kind of let things be a little bit more uh, easy uh, in the country. So they're not going to have much oversight. They're going to say, OK, yeah, you guys can do your things now. We know everything's safe and everyone's on the same page with who's ruling the country, what's going on. And then they're going to start... Um, Redevelopment. So at the moment, they're considering open, opening certain hotels and certain beautiful areas. They really are going to be big on the tourism industry. Because right next to them is Iran and Pakistan, which are still not economic powerhouses, but they have a large input, as a large output of exports. They're producing certain things, and they have a bigger population than Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is never going to be a main exporter, especially because it's landlocked too. They have no sea access for transport. So they saw that and went, OK, we're going to become a tourism industry. And we also have $3 trillion of minerals at the moment. China's really interested, so is the West. Oh, we're going to make uh, a huge type of mineral industry. We're going to export oil, we're going to export minerals, especially because there's sanctions on Russia and Venezuela at the moment. The West and China do want a lot of minerals at the moment for manufacturing. Right. Uh, one of the things I, I had here was I, I read a schizo post on Twitter that says something along the lines of the reason that we pulled out of Afghanistan is because now that fentanyl is a synthetic replacement for morphine in the form for, that comes from opium. We no longer need the opium fields of Afghanistan. That is when we pulled out. And I, when I read that, it didn't even strike me really as a conspiracy theory so much as it was, oh, that's just obviously correct. It would, is, is that, would you say that's true or? Part of it too. I also think the US pulled out because they were like, ah, oh, geez, we're not going to win this dude. I mean, if you declare, say, of the Taliban terrorist organization, which they never have, even though they would fit some criteria that the U.S. is deemed worthy, it would mean that the U.S. would have to act against the Taliban, but they just knew at that point there's no winning against the Taliban. It's like the whole Vietnamese thing. Um, you know, they've become a government and, you know, they can't be stopped. So the U.S. basically just gave up on Afghanistan and left. So I'm like, yeah, this is way too much money, $3 trillion invested at least into this whole thing. Um, and at the same time, they also saw the Taliban were moving to producing meth at the end of the war. Mm. So, oh, well, we can't even, we were trying to bomb the uh, poppy seeds fields to stop uh, opioids and everything. We can't even, we can't find out where they're making meth at the moment because we can be done in any home or any cave. Yeah, we're kind of losing the war on this. Like these, these people with lesser resources are well financed and we can't invade, basically. What? We what? Have, what is it that makes Afghanistan the graveyard of empires? It's very mountainous. So you can kind of cut off certain areas, but because it's so decentralized, most people know how to be self-sufficient. And plus, these people are fiercely religious. 
So they will basically die in mass before they give up any freedom which they want. So they know it's their land, it belongs to them, and they go fight for that no matter what. And they've kind of it's like a self-manifesting thing. So after the first two wars, so with the uh, with the against Genghis Khan and then against the British, after a while they were like, yeah, we're winning all these wars. Screw it, uh, we go win every single one subsequently. And it's been it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy where the Afghans just keep winning. And plus, these people can climb mountains running on nothing but bread and water and live in the caves in either the scorching hot desert or in the uh, the darkest, deepest winters and be absolutely fine. You, know, you can't fight an enemy like that. You cannot go through every single mountain and find them. And plus, the thing is with the Taliban, they're insurgents. So you can disguise yourself as an everyday civilian. And the US will never know any otherwise of it. It's just like Vietnam, you know. The locals uh, look like normal Vietnamese uh, um, soldiers and vice versa. So you would never know who's who. And therefore, you can't eliminate the enemy unless you commit just mass genocide. Right, right. Uh, there's a long history, both in, in real life and in fiction, of this British, uh, of a British figure going to Afghanistan, into the desert. There's the famous uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And then this has been immortalized in fiction, such as Dune. And uh, I'm literally going to send this interview to my friend that I play Armored Core 6 with, um, which which is also about this concept. Um, and you have clearly entered that pantheon of of explorers. What what do you what do you think it is about the desert that calls to to adventurers like this? It's it's weird because I I look at countries like Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and all these other countries, and I just I just love the idea of a desert. I don't know why because going to kind of northern areas, say Scotland for myself, it would be wet, it would be sticky, it would be a bit too rocky. But a desert is just nice and clean. It's the outside. It's nice and hot, which British people are not used to. So we mm. love the sun. Any sun whatsoever, we're very happy. I'm looking outside my window right now. It is always grey, 24-7, just grey. It's depressing. The sun, even if it's a scorching death trap of a desert, is seen as a utopia in comparison. So you can just walk around and know what to expect. And there's no weird terrain. Uh, you can just go there, get a lovely tan, see a beautiful outdoor place. You can explore because no one knows what's in the desert. There's some caves that might have some treasure inside. There's kind of an unknown aspect to it where you just want to go out and start digging or exploring or just looking around in general. My my understanding of the British Empire is that it was just a bunch of British people trying to find other less terrible places to live. Yeah, exactly. And we, we didn't find too many. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, we just we just wanted to goof off a little bit and go on an adventure find places so we could tell cool adventure stories to people back home. So speaking of that, you're supposed to be going to the border of China and Afghanistan. And if I understand it correctly, no one has seen that? Yes, in 1947. Now, sorry. I'm sorry, continue. No, sorry. Uh, uh, There's only one black and white photo that exists out there. So one grainy old photo was taken and at the same time when i look on google earth and google maps 
there's nothing for 100 miles leading up to this border on the Afghan side. Nothing. And same with China. There's like a 1,000 miles where there's nothing apart from um, a border fence that's 20 miles into the Chinese side. So you think, you know, there's no trees, there's no water, there's no uh, any, there's nothing there, nothing of interest or value. So why is there a, a seen on satellite images an active footpath? Interesting. So it must be a smoking room for opioids or something. And I'm very interested in that. And you, do you know how difficult it must be to go to places like this and create a footpath? There must be a huge traffic for, for a deep going on. So I'm thinking you know, there's, there's a weekly smuggling operation going on. So, so there's no... There's no border patrol. There's no, you, you say that there's a fence, but there's no watchtowers. There, there's literally nothing. 20 miles into the Chinese side, I can look on Google Maps and images. There's a Chinese station, uh, like an outreach station, um, that probably acts as security. So there's a massive fence 20 miles in. But you can see Afghan Chinese border, no problem. Now, the issue is the Chinese aren't exactly publishing their data and publishing their routes. So there might be something there. Apparently, I found this one documentary from years ago where the Chinese kind of do mountainside um, expeditions to the Afghan border once every few months or years just to train their troops up, just in case something pops off. So I think if you go there, I should have no problems. But the closest area is actually where a Uyghur camp on the... Mm. On not want to end up in a Uyghur camp if I mess up. But I'm going to go there. I'm going to go with a drone. And I'm going to go to the border. And it's a huge time zone difference. I think it's like four and a half or five and a half hours when, when you cross it. Because China's one giant time zone, which is funny. And then I'm going to go with a drone and get it within range of that military base and see how far I can go. And then hopefully no one notices me. But if they do, I quickly run across the border back to safety. It is shocking that as you were saying this, I'm thinking that is probably 10 times more dangerous than going yeah, to yeah. Afghanistan. Exactly. But at the same time, too, I don't think they expect anyone to go there. And I think it's one of those jobs where the worst Chinese get sent there, either because they're so useless or it's because um, they're being punished. Because this is in the middle of nowhere. There are no... They get uh, shipment easily. It's about 500 miles almost nearest village. It's, it's an insane location. My, my father was a police officer for 30 years. He recently retired. And he would tell me that um, the cops who were not doing something that was worth getting fired over, but they were not the best cops, eventually got put into, into the jails to, to manage them. So you might, you might be onto something there. I mean, you got to think about how these places would work in general. But I feel like if I turn up and there's a, like a border patrol, you might be, you might be incompetent, but you also might shoot on site. Yeah. So I've contacted the Chinese embassy a few times and they're like, oh, I don't know, man, where we would, con who would contact for that, but good luck. Uh, tell us your name. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll not let you go this but um seems like they're not willing to help unfortunately but we'll see what happens yeah i uh, good, good luck with that man um yeah, thank you on, on the the topic of exploration um i i asked you earlier about uh 
Actually, you know what? Let me do this first. Um, I'm currently obsessed with an artist named Shuji Teriyama. Uh, he's this Japanese artist that um, was born in the 1930s, and his father was killed in the Pacific War fighting the U.S. He was a fighter pilot. And then he went on to be uh, a director, an artist, and he's very famous in Japan, but virtually unknown in the U.S. And almost all of his work deals with what the nature of a regime change actually looks like. So when, uh, at the age of 15, all of a sudden he went from, the society that he lived in went from a hereditary monarchy with the god emperor to, and, and I don't know the Japanese term, but uh, the, the term that he uses is topsy-turvy. Everything was inverted. That, that suddenly the hated Americans were now in charge and they were a source of income. And a lot of his work uh, deals with what going through an actual regime change looks like. Um, can, you, can you talk at all about what it was like to, to see that happen, to see an actual reversal of that? So pre-Taliban takeover, when I was going around Kabul, I did not feel safe with the U.S. occupation. So there, I saw prostitutes on the streets in a strict Islamic nation. I saw loads of kids begging and getting quite violent. And a few times in tourist locations, I got threatened with a knife by, um, by a random local just walking around. When I went back, I, was, I thought it was going to be a little bit worse or maybe the same. But all the prostitutes were gone. The streets were a lot cleaner. And at the same time, there was a lot of law and order. Now, I saw Taliban at every corner holding a gun, looking around. But I just saw that as security. I thought of it as kind of South Korea when they first got uh, independence uh, after, the North, after the Korean War, there was a lot of streets and it meant it was just basically for long-term security. I felt quite safe, to be honest. Mm. And when soldiers and these guards, they were really chill. They wanted to take selfies of me. It was very good to see. Now, the whole idea that Afghanistan was going to be democracy just doesn't make sense to the Afghans. Um, you can see it in a few movies too, but when I spoke to the Afghans about this, they were like, yeah, I don't understand the idea of uh, voting with someone once every few years. Like, if they're doing a good job, why not just keep them? Like, why would we risk it each time? And why if they're lying? Like, why would we want someone who just lies? They just want to do it for the money. And they were like, why don't we just get someone in there? And then, obviously, because their name is on the line, they have to do well. And they get a little bit for themselves. But then, obviously, you know, they have to give to the people. Because if you're in government for, say, four years, you're going to spend those four years trying to get as much money as you can for yourself. But if you're there for, like, half your life or even a lifetime, yeah, you're going to spend a little bit, you know, doing well for yourself. But then you realise, you realize, oh, I have to take care of the people. And they were like, oh, yeah, we're going to have a supreme leader who's kind of the guy who led the Taliban. That seems chill. That makes, that's how it makes logical sense. So that guy is um, the supreme leader is actually uh, alive and real. And he's looking after the country right now, which is a lot better. When I spoke to loads of Afghans, and they've actually told me this without even me asking. I went to this one place in London where they import and export um, Afghan uh, nuts and seeds and stuff, you know, just, just for uh, retail. And he said, you know what, Miles, um, I hate to say this, don't tell anyone, but... Um, you know, we've been back a few times and we really like the Taliban. Like, we really like the new system. It's a lot safer. We, we find it a lot easier and it's a lot less hassle and BS. Like, before, it was really corrupt. Now, you don't, I don't have to pay any, any bribes to go across borders or just do normal legal business. 
And that seems amazing. That's really good to see because corruption just kills nations, unfortunately. I mean, we, we see what's happened in Africa nowadays. And at the same time, too, a lot of them just feel like it's a lot more straightforward in the country and they know what's going on. Because at the end of the day, um, things are moving and the Taliban are getting things done. Um, when the Supreme Leader or some of the ministers click their fingers, it gets done. But before, when the US was doing it, they were like, oh, they're just throwing money at us. We'll get it done whenever. And it was a huge money laundering scheme, basically. Can you talk a little bit about how the building thing worked? I think you mentioned it at another podcast, but I'd like to hear it again. Yeah, of course, dude. You mean um, when they were building uh, you know, structures and it was inferior? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I got told this by a former soldier, a former member of the SAS, and he told me, bro, Afghanistan might be screwed in a few years. So apparently what happened was they would hire local Afghan contractors to build, you know, skyscrapers and uh, big housing complexes and individual buildings and offices. Everything was built by the Afghans and how uh, they wanted to keep the money in Afghanistan. But they were paying per hour, not per the job, which and they give them a lot of leniency because it's a new company and they don't have experience with modern uh, building equipment and manufacturing. So the Afghans were thinking, well, screw it, if this, the US taxpayer is paying, who cares? Um, we'll make tons of money. So they would build it incorrectly on purpose, you know, use inferior products while saying they're using the top quality product, skim the rest off the top. And then you'll get built. The safety inspector would say, yeah, it's failed. They would knock it down waste all that material and they would build it up again and they would repeat this so many times until these health and safety person would go ah screw it who cares uh this is close enough now of course that means those people it cost, it cost like five or six times more than it was predicted to cost to actually make that place but also it means every single building is structurally not safe so it means within about 10 or 20 years a lot of buildings are going to collapse basically terrifying yeah exactly imagine your population boomed and kind of quadrupled in the last 20 years and you're still struggling with space right now and then suddenly all those modern buildings are going to collapse and it's a huge zone as well so afghanistan of course experiences yearly earthquakes some of them are very very high on the richter scale and then the buildings that are meant to be super duper safe are just kind of falling apart, crumbling like it's a, like a Chinese modern skyscraper. It's it's like an entire it's like an entire country was Miami basically. I mean, I love this. It was it was a dodgy place with buildings and standards. That's the thing too. When I opened the gold mine, I built a buy or build a house there or some sort of residential plot. So I'm thinking I might just have to buy a piece of land in Kabul and build my own place because I'm not trusting the American building standards. <laughs> um, what is the policy, I guess the word is, for Americans going to Afghanistan right now? Are they cool with it? or? Next, if you go there as an ex-soldier, you have a problem because it's like it's very disrespectful. It's like, you know, if you fought in Afghanistan, you would not go back. It's, you would have some problems. Um, if you are going there as a spy, obviously big problems. If you're going there to undermine the Taliban government or cause problems in any way, you know, do some illegal trading, which does happen more often than you think, big problems too. But if you go there as an American dude who's just a tourist, that's chill. They see it as ironic in some ways, but they know, yeah, this guy didn't fight in the war. He probably doesn't support it. Um, 
he's just a tourist. Like, that's cool. We have Afghans going to Europe and America sometimes, um, even members of the Taliban. So why shouldn't they come here? You know, we'll give them a good time. We'll show them what Afghanistan's really about. They'll actually, um, like you've seen in many YouTube videos, I imagine, they'll give you a really good experience. And sometimes they might ask for like a tip or something to help them out. And, you know, you give them like $20 and they're very happy. And they give you whatever you need. Um, there's no bribes going on, but it's just you know some people just saying, "Hey, we would really appreciate this," but no, no pressure. It's all chill, if not, it's all good like that. But if you're going there as a businessman, they're very eager for foreign investment right now. So at the moment, they really are happy with YouTubers coming. Because YouTubers are not like journalists; they actually tell the truth a lot of the time and are blatantly honest. So journalists, they just make up a bunch of BS. They don't get the other side of the story. They spend like three days there and claim to know the entire country. It sucks, and they don't like those journalists who lie. You know, they're very strict on it. They're like, yeah, if we, we know you've lied about this. We've got evidence right here. Um, could you actually, like, you know, tell the truth? Or if you, if you want to lie about that country and cause us problems, we, we don't want you here. Don't come again. That which makes sense. I mean, why not? Um, and... So, yeah, if, basically, it depends. It's a mix, really. Um, they don't like certain nationalities. So, of course, if you're Israeli, not good. So, if you have a dual citizenship with Israel, which a lot of American Congress do, surprisingly. Uh, yeah, what, what, have, this, is, this is the first I'm hearing about this. Yeah, dude. But a lot of Muslim countries aren't fans of Israeli citizens. So, if you have an Israeli passport, you won't be accepted into the country. So, you don't recognize Israel. But if you go there as a Jew and, like, just don't push your religion onto them at all. Your children just to do your own thing. You're a visitor, and as a visitor, you treat as a guest. Like when I was there for eight months in Taliban custody, they were like, "Oh, you're Christian, right?" I was like, "Yeah." They were like, "Oh, do you want a Bible?" You know, they're chill with that. As long as you start, don't start preaching in Afghanistan. They're fine with it. So th this does seem like liberal. The word liberal gets thrown around a lot, but it do it does seem like they've liberalized slightly. Yeah, exactly. The thing is, too, we always complain that the Taliban aren't completely westernized and accepting, you know, all the modern standards we have. But 40 years ago, you know, in America and England, we wouldn't have the same standards, too. We would be seen as being the dark ages, according to our own standards nowadays. And the Taliban have gone from, you know, the 1980s, basically having no roads or no airport, to in the 2000s, you know, smashing TVs with... Uh, with baseball bats because he didn't like TV. And now in 2023, they all have TikTok on their mobiles and they're watching movies and, you know, they're going to coffee stores, drinking tea and coffee and they uh, occasionally listen to music depending on how strict they are of their religion, that type of stuff too. Like you've got some of the elders who are very strict, of course, because they're set in their ways and they grew up like that, which is understandable, that's chill. But some of the younger ones are exposed to the outside world and they understand how things work now internationally. And they're like, yeah, we're past the war now. Uh, my heart isn't really solid from all this fighting. Yeah, I think we can be a little bit more lenient. So I think in another 20 years, they're going to be a lot more chill. I see, I see Afghanistan as having immense potential of that type of stuff. Which for John, unfortunately. I would love to see one of those obnoxious YouTubers that end up getting arrested in other countries for just annoying the locals go to Afghanistan and just get their hands cut off or something. Dude, yeah, they would get detained um, and held, of course. Depends on what the content is. If they obviously assault someone and they run away, yeah, they, they, it's an eye for an eye, you know. But if they go there and make uh, immodest content, few months in prison most likely 
But uh, there's awesome like Afghan TikTokers and YouTubers who get in trouble themselves because they're making modest content. And one guy was recently um, convicted of making cringe content in Afghanistan. So he's got. Was that yeah, the legal yeah. So, charge? Yeah, yeah, it's literally the charge of making cringe content, which is pretty based. So I think I like that about Afghanistan. I think that makes a lot of sense. And the guy spent two weeks in custody. He uh, he apologized. He was like, "Yeah, to be fair, I kind of get like I was pushing the boundaries. Uh, I shouldn't do that as a Muslim. I understand. Sorry, guys. I'll I'll do better next time." And that was chill. That makes perfect sense. So, uh, to go back to to Bronze Age mindset, you read the book and. Oh, and you enjoyed it. I, I I don't know if you ever got around to writing that review, but you said that uh, that that book was. How did you phrase it? That it it was um, the best written example of your philosophy of life. Exactly. Yes, it was incredibly based in that way. Um, I liked how it manifests the ideas and comes together and personifies the whole idea of a modern man and trapped inside a uh, cringe society, but he's kind of wanted to get out and go on adventures and kind of, um, you know, be in control of his own destiny, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, the Bronze Age mindset, but hence the title. Uh, I want to go out and go on adventures and sort my own life out. Like, for example, I've got the option right now to take a 35-year mortgage and put down 10% and then, you know, pay or, you know, one third of my income for a nice house and then, you know, do maintenance on it and all that nonsense. No, hell no. I want to do the Bronze Age mindset type of um, situation and instead buy a plot of land and then build a house on it and then do it to my specifications. And, you know, that's that's my property then. I mean, I'm all fine with that. Um, same with Afghanistan. I don't want to work a waging nine-to-five job. I've, I've worked a job before ever since I was 14 years old, so I'm not some spoiled kid like that. I've always worked hard. I don't come from a rich family. But after doing... 80 hours a week in investment banking. I thought, you know, screw this. I'm going to start my own business, travel, and I'm going to, I'm going to, have to adapt to the modern world, obviously. I have to use the internet and social media and whatever. And that's cool. But I want to kind of create my own destiny and do it in the manliest way possible, which isn't making spreadsheets and going to diversity meetings, but it's traveling the world, goofing off and making friends with people and opening my own business. Hell yeah. Well, who can ask for more? I'll struggle, dude. Um, I, I have two questions here that I, I put in my group chat uh, for what questions they wanted to ask you. So these were the two uh, good, uh, good ones that I chose. What is yes. your opinion of Oliver Cromwell? Oliver Cromwell? Ooh, I know of him, but I don't know too much about him. That makes sense. I mean, give me, give me a quick rundown, if you don't mind. Um, you see, I'm an American, so you're asking the wrong person. But Oliver Cromwell, uh, during... Uh, the the English uh, Civil War, uh, there was, uh, I can't remember what king it was, but he was not a very good king, and he formed Parliament, and Parliament ended up executing one of his uh, lead advisors, and the king slowly realized that he was losing power, uh, and he incorrectly believed that he was the king uh, and in control of everything all the way up to the point where uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, cut off his head. Interesting. Well, I do like monarchy a lot better, to be fair. But it's not perfect, but it's good to have a strong bloodline of individuals whose entire destiny is to lead a country. Now, Parliament just sits around in England with their dicks in their hands, just like self-masturbating, just fucking around. 
excuse my language. But he seems like he seems like he he had good intentions at the end of the day. Uh, let's see. I'm I'm reading it right now on my laptop. Uh, yeah. So the next question, the follow up to that is, how do you respond to the Irish allegations? Irish allegations. Let's see. Would you like? Are are you free to comment on the allegations that you are secretly Irish? I'm secretly Irish. I've never heard this before. Well, what do some people think that? I, I mean, I, I, this is. I'm I'm hearing it more and more. All right, more and it, more people are saying it. I don't think I am. I don't, I'm not an alcoholic, so how can I be Irish? Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, I a test. I could be because this is a big. I'm a. I'm a. Um, I'm a uh, test tube baby. You know, I'm a I'm a product of IVF. Mm. So I legally I can't know my dad until I do a DNA test. So at some point I should do one. So you could be Irish. Could be Irish, to be fair. But at the same time, I don't have a thick accent. Mm. But at the same time, I have a hate for England sometimes. So it's oh. kind of. And some people thought I was uh, Welsh at one point because I had to lie about that to get out of Taliban issues. Um, you know. They, uh, they didn't like the English at one point, so I'd say, oh, yeah, Welsh, uh, they invaded us too, one struggle. Um, it's like, um, so you've heard that. Pardon me? You've heard this a few times, um, but I'm may possibly Irish. No, that was just an allegation that uh, got put in the group chat and people wanted me to ask you about it. Um, I, was, I, I don't I, like. I, I will admit something to you. Uh, when I first met you at that Mars Review, uh, uh, Sovereign House, Mars Review uh, Books, Sovereign House, um, your accent threw me a little bit. And, and when I was talking about you later, the way I phrased it was his accent was like if you asked me, an American, to do what I thought was a British accent. Yes. That was, that was kind of what I and, I, and I was kind of thrown by it because I didn't quite know what to make of it. You know what? Do you want to know why? So I grew up in a place called Birmingham. And if you Google what the worst accent in England is, it's a Birmingham accent. No one likes it. It's the most unattractive accent. It's the equivalent of the international stage as an Indian accent. It's, it's shockingly unattractive. So when I was quite young, I trained myself. Because I was like 12 years old and I thought, if I sound like, if I sound like this, I'm from fucking Birmingham. If I sound like that constantly, I'm job no matter how qualified you are if you walk into a place go oh hello mate in it anyway i got like phd in it in uh in uh physics uh i don't know if i'm qualified enough for this retail job they would still not deny you you know because it's the accent no one's attracted to that so i had to purposely change my accent uh, on a little bit subconsciously but when i get really pissed off or angry and start shouting which is very rare the birmingham accent does come out so I think it's, I'm kind of LARPing as a British person. But maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe I am secretly Irish, hiding it. Do you, you, know? Do you, know, where, do you know where I'm from? No, dude. Do, I, do, do. I am from Shreveport, Louisiana, which, Louisiana. which is, in a lot of ways, the Afghanistan of America. Um, our new Speaker of the House is from my hometown. And, Very not. I mean, yeah. And... <laughs> And uh, I also am very glad that I lost my accent because the Arklatex accent is terrible. If you've ever watched King of the Hill, that's that's what it uh, sounds like. I kind of love I love King of the Hill though. It's, it's a kind of comfort accent, but if you go anywhere in the world, they go say, "What the hell is this English? This is ridiculous." But, but I thought 
I thought you were from New York or something. You thought I was? Oh, well, that, that must have just been the company I was keeping at the moment when we met. There was a lot of... Uh... No, same. Um, it depends on where I am. So I think I'm in a small village in England or somewhere normal. My, uh, I just speak normally. But if I'm with people that are obviously influential, it's, it's a business meeting. I, I speak with a slightly more harsh accent. So this leads me to the next question. What did you... So first... How did you get involved in the Urbit community or how did you first hear about it? And what did you think of the of Urbit Assembly? Because you were there briefly. Yes, exactly. So I heard about it from a friend of mine who also invited me to Portugal. And I just thought, I started researching, I started Googling it. And I thought, you know what, this seems like it's an excellent thing going on. And why not? It'll be excellent to look into this stuff. So after I did some more research, I looked at some influencers who actually do the same thing. Um, together and I watched a few brief YouTube videos on it too there wasn't too much out there but when I went through all this and I saw the reputation it had I thought yeah this is amazing so I decided just to pop in and give it a listen again and it, it met my expectations they exceeded it so it was some very good stuff what about yourself man oh um my, most of the people listening to this are already going to know my stories so I'll tell it very quickly um I used to bartend on Bourbon Street in New Orleans and uh, I did that for four or five years, and I fully expected I would do that for the rest of my life, and I would consider myself lucky because I, I, I deeply loved that job. And uh, during my downtime, I taught myself enough about computers, and I made friends in the Urban community that eventually Ted Blackman, who is now the uh, head of the Urban Foundation, offered me an internship at Tlon, the startup that launched uh, Urbit, which is not something I expected to happen. Uh, so I, I, I had explained this to someone at, uh, Urban Assembly in Portugal who, uh, I didn't know. And he just kind of looked at me stunned and he goes, wow, you kind of just charisma checked your way, uh, to no, this, huh? Those are, that's how most people make it in the world, really, because no one has a direct line. If you decide from a normal life to say investment banking or, uh, you know, some PA or something i think everyone just falls into it and you have to be a likable person to get somewhere in life you know what i mean i, I agree i know i i studied physics so i had some really autistic geniuses in my in my year in my class but at the same time even though they were brilliant at what they do and they could program whatever or solve any equation they were assholes because they're that type of autistic you know very arrogant very, very you know just a finger of grass couldn't couldn't talk to anyone for two minutes certainly couldn't talk to HR or a woman. Mm. So brilliant they are, no matter what they do, they will always be working at earning the minimum salary for someone with a degree or PhD, whilst the person who's doing mediocre but he's got good people skills will go very far and actually go into upper management and earn a ton more. So I think at the end of the day, life is about likability. Um, the issue is a lot of people do fake it, and which comes across very superficial, which you do see a lot in uh, in uh, jobs nowadays. I mean, have you been to LA? Everyone's superficial there. I, I went to LA one time, and I, I didn't get to experience very many. The The only people I got to meet in LA was uh, Peter Thiel, and he was pretty cool. But other than that, uh, he, pardon me? Oh, I, I know about Peter. He's amazing. He is... I, I think he will be remembered as one of the great men of of this age. Thank God. Those that he's earned it. Uh, agree, 
Agreed. Um, so, uh, last question here. Um, for someone who wants to do what you do and yeah. wants to go have an adventure, not not necessarily, but possibly do the YouTube route of of uh, danger tourism, but but wants to go live life to the fullest and and live the Bronze Age mindset. Is there any anywhere you know besides Afghanistan? Is there anywhere that you think that you someone can go to? Um, and, and travel and have this experience. Are there any bush wars that you've been paying attention to? I'm kind of interested in what's happening with Cape Town right now, personally. Hey, good man, good man. That's been under a portion, unfortunately, so it's good for someone's noticing. I also think Azerbaijan and Armenia are very interesting. The issue is Azerbaijan is it's closed off pretty much to everyone. Uh, so all the land borders and seaboards are closed. You have to fly in and the military is very strict with things. Armenia would be a bit more lenient if you're filming because obviously they want a little bit more coverage. So if you go to Armenia, if you want to adventure, I think the best ones would be the nature adventures, as long as you know how to hike and look after yourself and have backup plans and maybe a friend that comes with you. So I'll say places like Argentina because you've got the very hot north, mountainous, uh, mountain west side, and down south it's very cold. And there's some areas like Patagonia which are just uninhabited but stunningly beautiful. So you can go on adventures there. You can go spend a month just hiking and exploring and buying meat off uh, local farmers in certain areas and doing odd jobs, which would be great. There's also some other areas too. Libya is always a hot one, which is very hard to get into, but it would be amazing to go there. I'm not saying go to North Korea and you know try and go far, but going there on a guided tour would be a great insight would be very safe as long as you don't do something stupid like pull a poster off a wall, you know. Um, I would also say China in some places too, because China borders a lot of interesting nations. So you can go to some very remote places in China on some tours and meet some very interesting people. China is a land of extremes. Mm. Also, my, but I wouldn't go there unless you have balls of steel, because if you watch Rambo 4, Myanmar is a very, very ruthless place. Um, you know, if you're from a certain tribe, killed. If you're a foreigner, we don't know what you're doing there, killed. It's like they have, they just have fun with killing. They they see it as a game almost. So I would be very careful there. But if you go there, no problems, I guess. If you if you know what you're doing and you're very careful and accept the risks. If you want to go on adventures too, and obviously you don't have cash to burn, I would say join some sort of charity that you actually believe in. I don't mean a large scale one, but I mean. A very small one that will cover your costs and everything. It'll be a great networking event. You'll meet like, like-minded people. You can see some interesting countries. Uh, some examples for UN. I know highest people for what thirty grand a year to so just go to South Sudan and teach people. And some of those countries are insane. You do six month rotations, so you can do six months in South Sudan and go back home, or you can go to another country after that. You can do a lot of charity work. Um, there's some countries where you can go to and have adventures and actually get paid for very good business. So I know in India, they'll pay you around $50,000 a year just to be the white guy in their business. Oh, I think I've heard about this. Like, you don't have to do anything. You're just there as a... Yeah, exactly. You go into meetings and you just sit there and occasionally you can just say white guy stuff. You can just go, this checks out. <laughs> or you can just say business or deal. You know, and these people are like, wow, he's got a white guy in his business? That's insane. There's a whole business too where 
I know people create shell companies in the UK, in England. And for some reason, India's got an obsession with England. If you see it as like the golden land, the you know, mid-country, I've got to admit. So to create shell, con- shell companies, maybe add a few things into it, make it semi-operational, and we'll sell it at a huge upmarket to Indian companies, just so Indians can say, yeah, I've got, I've got a company in England. And they'll go, whoa, whoa. And of course, it, it, you know, it's nothing. So India would be very fun to go to, I think. And especially if you're a white dude, people treat you with a lot of respect. They'll want selfies of you. They'll think you're someone upper crust. And I'm not saying you take advantage of that, but I guess enjoy it to, you know, do it proportionally. Yeah, it's, it's nice to go to places where people like white people. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's, it's lovely to uh, go to a place where uh, you don't get killed, like strict Muslim countries like France, um, if you're white. I would also say Ukraine would be honestly no problem. If you go to Kiev, you're chilling. Now, you get to, you get to see the adventure of you have a military and this type of stuff. You get to talk to them, interact with them and see what's like in a wartime place. And when you go there, of course, help people out. Don't be, don't be a dick about it. But, you know, go there hotels are open there's some there's some pod hotels that are five dollars a night that are fully operational and there's other places like Lviv which is kind of close to the Polish border they haven't they've had no war whatsoever they haven't heard a single gunshot so you can go there stay there for dirt cheap and you know enjoy a beautiful city it's one of those that were built by Poland and it's stunningly beautiful well I should put a Pollock joke uh, there, but I don't know any off the top of my head. Uh, I said that was going to be the last question, but there was one that occurred to me as you were saying that. Um, I, I mentioned briefly about how I, I kind of charisma checked my way into I, I went from bartending professionally to literally two years later, I was having dinner with Peter Thiel. And I think the phrase uh, imposter syndrome, for want of a better word, is extremely gay. How, no, it's, I get it. But but, I. How, how do you deal with being in scenarios where it is hard to believe what is happening is happening and is happening to you? Yeah. Oh, the hardest thing. I honestly haven't had imposter syndrome until recently, because, as you know, it wasn't until recently. I think it was Snake Island. So it was before I got arrested in Afghanistan for eight months. When I went there, it was you know the most dangerous, second most dangerous island in the world. There's one snake per square foot, and every snake is highly venomous to the point where if it bites you, there's no anti-venom. You're dead within five minutes, maybe ten minutes. You bleed out, you bleed out your eyes, uh, all your pores fall apart, your organs liquefy, you're dead. So I went there with a suit of medieval armor, and I, I paid a smuggler to take me there. And when I stepped off the island, I was like, "Holy crap, I'm doing this." I've seen documentaries from Vice and all these other places saying, yeah, I refuse to come to this island. It's too dangerous. People just dying on this island constantly by going there illegally or just ending up on there by accident. And I'm the first tourist to go there. And I've you know put together this stupid autistic plan that I did not plan enough for, of course. And when I got to the top and I sort of su- succeeded, I was thinking, holy crap, I'm here. But no one, like more people have been to the moon than this location. This is insane. And then, of course, the Coast Guard started coming towards that direction. I got a radio from my friend on the boat. So I stripped off all the armor because it was very heavy armor. It would be impossible to get down in 
of BOCOM. So we would have been arrested and thrown in Brazilian jail, which is not good. So I stripped off all the armor to jeans and T-shirt, and I ran down in thick foliage around me. And I thought, I'm going to be bitten. I thought I was going to be bitten, so I was running for a good 10 minutes straight. And I did not get bitten. I did not die. And I kept thinking to myself, I should have 100% died. I have no idea why I didn't. And sometimes I do wake up from a dream where I was on Snake Island again, and I'm just running from a snake, and a snake does bite me. Or I'm surrounded by snakes. It's not that I'm scared of it. It's just, it seems like I should have died so many times. And as well in Afghanistan, this is my biggest thing too. You hear you hear about like people being spies and stuff and trying to network and make friends. Personally, I'm not a spy. Not, I know a lot of people don't believe that, but I'm generally not a spy. I would never do it. It's, it's high risk. I don't see the point of it. Um, you don't get anything out of it. It's just some cringe stuff. No one cares about you if you're a spy. You just risk your life for no reason. And when I made friends with the Taliban, I was the best freedom prisoner in Taliban history. And you've got people who are like special forces that have been trained in hottest negotiation and how to stay alive and how to make friends. And you've you've met, obviously, very dodgy people who have been to these countries who are psychopaths and all this other stuff. And I've gone there and done the best. I've done better than them by making dad jokes. And I just think to myself, whoa, I'm not over my head, but it seems so unlikely this is happening. It seems good, too good to be true, if that makes sense. You know, I can't accept a good thing. That's imposter syndrome for me. So other moments, like I've turned down deals of half a million dollars, $700,000 for the gold mine, because we're going for eight or nine figures even for the gold mine and uh, the Afghan Redevelopment Fund. And I'm talking to these institutional bankers. I'm having meetings with, you know, these big companies that are worth like hundreds of millions, even billions. And we're putting things together and it's coming together slowly. And it just doesn't seem like I should be in this world, if that makes sense. It seems like, you know, I, I just, yeah, it's, it's imposter syndrome, basically. No, I, I, I completely agree. Um, I didn't want to interrupt you as you were saying this, but when you say a suit of armor, do you, do you mean like a literal Which, medieval one or like a modern? Well, it's a, it's medieval styles, but it's a modern. So it's made cheaply in India. I bought it for like $1,000, $2,000. and has the padding underneath. So snakes can't buy through armor. So I'm like, oh, that's hmm. not But I suit of poorly made Indian armor is exactly mobile, is it? I so I one of those dog bite suits, you know? Um, you know, suits that they use to train dogs where you come out look literally man and a dog bites your arm, but you can't feel it. I should have had one of those. I gotcha. I gotcha. All right. Well, we're hitting our limit here. So uh, I'm going to throw out two last things. First is uh, for your next voyage, and I'm just throwing this out there. Would you consider going to the island that Epstein is currently hiding out on. Not the one where, not the previous one, but the one that he's hiding out on now that he has faked his death. Is this North Central Island? If, if so, I would go there. No, kidding. Um, yeah, honestly, if you know which island it is, I will go there. I mean, I I do, but you know, I, I don't want to get into how I know that, okay? So maybe we'll cut this part of the interview. Yeah, we'll cut the ball, slice it up, but... Is it an easy get to island? What, like, where is it? Is it in North America, South America? Uh, my my guess is that it's somewhere in the Pacific. To be honest with you, I, I I legitimately think that he's still alive. Yeah, that would make sense too, because if you're that rich, you can fake your death very easily. And uh, the last thing is, please, please do not get caught 
committing any war crimes. I'm not saying don't do them. I'm yeah, just saying it, this is our first episode and it will reflect very poorly on us. If you, that's cool. we, we will still have you back on. Thank you. Oh, well, I'll, you know, um, I'll, when I get out in 20 years, I'll be like, well, oh man, good to have me, uh, good, to ha- good. Back. Um, they use the evidence from the podcast, uh, a genocide I committed. Oh dear. Um, no, it should be good though. Honestly, people think about these war crimes and these illegal activities as being very hard to do. But there was a story about a, a man in, he went to North Korea as a tourist and he just tried to talk to him about cryptocurrency. This came up in conversation and he wasn't telling them too much. He wasn't pitching anything. He was like, oh yeah, this is what cryptocurrency is. This is how it works. And like, I use that. That'd be kind of cool for you guys. It was like a five, 10 minute conversation. And somehow US intelligence found out and he's in prison for life. Oh, yeah. Of course. So I'm walking a very fine line here. I do not I do not want to cause any problems, too. So I'm finding out what's legal. I'm being very transparent in what I'm doing. Uh, so if any government asks me, I go, yeah, I'm doing this, this, and this. These are my documents. You want any information? Yeah, no problem. Like uh, when I went to the U.S. Uh, embassy for my visa, um, they were like, you know, what are you doing here? And I just gave a full list of everything and they were very confused, but they were like, yeah, thanks for being honest. That's cool. Uh, same with the Taliban, same with British too. Because you can't explain some of this stuff away. It's so absurd. They use, being honest just seems realistic, you know. It's so absurd that anything else that you say just wouldn't make sense. So no war crimes to me, just uh, between you and me, uh, maybe one or two, you know. All right, well, just keep them, try to keep them quiet. All right. But- uh, thank you, Lord Miles. And next time you go back, try to onboard the Taliban onto Urbit if you if you, if it comes up in conversation. Okay. Here we go. They're they're trying to figure out the technology side of their regime. Um, you know, kind of connecting the entire country to one centralized network for you know all this other stuff. Especially when they didn't have computers, what twenty years ago. They're figuring stuff out, but I think when they get there, uh, I'll let them know. And I think I'll pitch the idea. I'll plant the idea. Let the seed grow, you know. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, man. Good luck in your journeys. Having me, dude.